switching gears a little bit. Acts chapter 8. In some ways, Acts chapter 8 fits well with some of the things that I experienced because part of the struggle of the church at times uh, in its growth over the years has been what to do with people that are different from us. And immigration has raised that a great deal because people are coming from all over the world. And so, you know, when you think about our own heritages, all of us came from someplace else too. And none of us are Native American that I'm aware of. And so at some point we were immigrants and as our forefathers and mothers came to this land or other places, they were looked upon as different. And as Christians encountered them, they had to decide, are we going to love these people and accept them as part of God's creation and reach out with the love of Christ or will we not? And that was part of what happened in the book of Acts and chapter 8 in particular. Let's pray, and then we'll look at chapter 8 together. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning. Guide us now as we meet. Guide us as we learn. Would you be our teacher this morning? Would you open our eyes to the needs around us, whatever that might be, Lord, whether it concerns something like immigration or the, and the people that are uh, caught up in that in, in various ways, or the people that are uh, part of our, our uh, classes at school, our teams, our communities, even our extended families, Father. May our eyes be open to the needs of people and how you want to use us as your people to meet those needs in the name of Christ and to share the good news of Jesus with them. Thank you, Father, for uh, your word. Teach us now as we look at it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a number of things that I want us to think about as we look at Acts chapter 8. I'm not going to take the time to review Acts 1 through 7. The highlights in your Bible, the headings pretty much can tell you what we've studied thus far, but this will be our last study in Acts until the first of the year. We'll have missionaries coming in November. It's missionary month, as you are learning, uh, and then in December, of course, we'll have Advent, so we'll pick up our study of Acts after the first of the year. New frontiers for the church came in various ways. Now, God, in a sense, told the people, uh, or Jesus himself, well, God told, told his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you're going to be my witnesses where? In your hometown, in Jerusalem, in, in, in a greater part of your area, familiar to you, Judea. You know, it's kind of like saying Kern County or maybe California. But also Samaria, going to people that you may not like or care for or feel uncomfortable around, but that's part of the gospel, is taking it to people that need Jesus too, and to the ends of the earth. So pick your spot, like Burkina Faso, for example, that part of Phil and Carol's burden, and now we see the fruits of that. But as new frontiers are explored, or as God leads the church into new frontiers, us individually, corporately, New frontiers often involve responding to change, first of all. Responding to change. In verses 1b through 8, we ended on 1a with this phrase, and Saul, or Paul as we know him probably better as, approved of their killing him. Killing who? Ste killing Stephen. On that day, 1b, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. About 20,000 people. Is, is the best guesstimate of how many followers of Christ there were. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. So it started in Jerusalem, and God said, you're going to be my witnesses in those other places. And now through the changing circumstances of persecution, it began to happen. 
That word scattered there is a word that could be used for scattering or sowing seed. So God, in a sense, is taking his people and he's sowing the seeds of good news in other places, places they hadn't gone yet. It talks about all except the apostles. It's probably more of a reference to those believers who had a Jewish background as opposed to those who had a Grecian background or non-Jewish. We saw that in chapter 6. Why did they have to choose the seven, uh, what we now call deacons today? Because the Grecian Jews, the widows, were not being served quite as equally perhaps as the Hebraic Jews or the Jewish Jews probably because of a language barrier, culture barrier. So God raised up these seven men who led the way and made sure they were cared for. So the Grecian Jews possibly were more of a target because they didn't speak the language as well. They may have looked a little differently. And so the persecution began against them and God began to scatter them through that, through these surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul, or Paul as we'll learn later, began to destroy the church. That word destroy is a word that would be used in Greek to describe an animal literally tearing its prey apart. That's how vehement he was against the church. He hated the church because it was an affront to his faith of Judaism. Religious persecution is the worst kind because people do it in the name of God, whatever that God may be, and it just motivates them sometimes to do the most atrocious things. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Acts chapter 29, in his own personal testimony, He says that this were Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. Now some wonder if he was part of that Sanhedrin, that group of 70. We're not sure. I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme, to turn their back on the Lord, to denounce their faith in Christ. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So Paul wasn't satisfied just to find them in Jerusalem, but he went to other places. I may have started with the Grecian Jews, but it probably spread to anybody who named the name of Christ. A change of circumstances for the church. Those who had been scattered, like seed being sown, preached the word wherever they went. Philip, one of the original seven in Acts chapter 6, went down to a city in Samaria. It's not named. Sychar is a city that Josh read about earlier. The the Samaritans coming out to hear Jesus, to believe in him, the woman at the well. That was part of Samaria. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, demonic powers in other words, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. God did miraculous things through Philip. So there was great joy in that city. You can imagine people being healed, people being delivered from demonic powers. God was using Philip to spread the gospel. He went to a place called Samaria. For the Jewish person, Samaria was the last place they wanted to go. Samaria was, became Samaria after the captivity of 722 B.C. when the Assyrian army came in and swept through and took the people from the northern kingdom of Israel off to captivity. 
Eventually they brought some of them back, but they also repopulated that area of Samaria with non-Jewish people. So as those two groups mixed, people are by nature religious. It was, a, it was called syncretism. It was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, who knows all that came from that, but, but, but the Jewish person who considered themselves pure looked at the Samaritans and they would say they were impure because they mixed Judaism along with whatever else was happening. Could have been the worship of the stars, could have been the sacrifice of children, just all kinds of different things that may have been part of the theology of those who were brought into that area. And that was Samaria. The Jews hated it and they would avoid it at all costs. But God raised up a non-Jew evangelist, Philip, and sent him there. And began to use him in miraculous ways. You see the Lord will often use a change of circumstances in our lives. To bring the gospel to new places. Maybe not like a Samaria. Most of us aren't called to those kind of things. But like Stephen he may be preparing us to go to an audience that will receive us. So you think about the circumstances of your life right now. And maybe how they've changed over the last few years. Well, could it be that God is saying, I am bringing you into new circumstances and I'm continuing, continuing to prepare you because I'm preparing people to hear the gospel. Are you willing, like Philip, to be a witness of mine wherever I take you? Or, as often the case, when circumstances change, sometimes it's good things. We go, oh, this is great. God has blessed me. But when it's bad things, we say, what's, what's wrong? Where's God when it hurts? I think in our culture, we, unfortunately at times, we worship the God of comfort and convenience more than the God of the Bible. And so when things are hard, we complain rather than say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to do? God may be trying to do more through our circumstances than we realize, but we have to be open to that as he does it. One of the things I didn't share in our border tour was we were coming back to America for breakfast on Wednesday morning. And what should have taken maybe just a few minutes to get across the border took five hours. We were detained at the border because one of the people from Mennonite Central Committee was a Canadian citizen who lived in Bogota, Colombia and was over all of South America and she had joined us. And for whatever reason, when we got to the border, we all hand our passports in, they checked them all out and they said, could you just pull over here and wait right by all the people whose cars are being checked for drugs and all those kind of things? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Five hours later, after being detained at the border station, we were released. She had to stay 10 hours and never got in the country. They wouldn't let her in the United States. We're not sure why. She's obviously not a terrorist. She's about one of the nicest gals you could meet. But something in her record caused a flag to pop up and they said, nope, can't come in. So as we sat there for those five hours, we were faced with a choice. We can either get mad and try to call our congressman, or we could say, well, okay, Lord, our change of circumstances. There was one particular border guard that kept coming around and talking with us. He was I don't know if I'd say he was overly friendly, but he just, maybe he felt sorry for us. But here's the rest of our team sitting around waiting for this gal from Canada. And I'm sure we're not the first group that's been detained there. But I guess I would hope that our group reflected Jesus as we were sitting there waiting. We hadn't had breakfast yet. And if you know me, it's like, man, first thing, coffee, breakfast. That, you know. 
And uh, we were all getting very, very hungry. But we tried to just, you know, commit it to the Lord and do our best to be a living witness. And I don't know what came from that. But could it be that that guard had been prayed for by somebody and in God's divine appointment book, he said, you're going to be exposed to about eight people who are going to be detained for five hours. And you watch how they respond to that. Now, I'm not saying that to brag, but could it be that God used that change of circumstance to so accomplish his purposes? Well, if we believe in a God that's sovereign, I'd say, you bet. He can do those kinds of things. Responding to changes. The other thing we learn is that opportunities also turn into counterfeits. Verses 9 through 25. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery or magic in the city. Bad kind of magic, not Pastor Grayson kind of magic. And amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people both high and low gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed, quote unquote, and was baptized. And he followed Peter everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God now remember they were Jewish the Samaritans were Samaritans and they thought oh really they really God is working there what a terrible place to work what's wrong with God had accepted the word of God they sent Peter and John to Samaria to verify that the gospel was really being heard and responded to. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that were there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, which they did, which was God's way of kind of proving that, yes, I'm really working here, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So God chose to wait to give the Holy Spirit until the apostles could witness that. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So his belief, quote-unquote, is starting to show through here. And said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered. Now in Greek, this could literally be translated, let you and your money go to hell. That's, that would be the literal translation, but... My Bible didn't translate it that way. I guess they didn't want to cause offense. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Turn from it. In other words, and pray to the Lord in this hope that he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. We're not told which ones those were, but Samaria, which was north of Jerusalem and that area of Judea, was where God was at work. It has been shown through church history that Simon the sorcerer never really did really believe in Jesus. In fact, many trace the rise of Gnosticism back to Simon the sorcerer. He wanted what the apostles had in demonstrating a power, but he didn't want the power of God in his heart to change him. 
And many have traced the rise of Gnosticism, which plagued the church for the first several centuries, back to this very man himself. Gnosticism is kind of the worship of knowledge. Knowledge, gnosis is a word in Greek that, where we get the word Gnosticism. One of the teachings that Gnosticism is kind of multifaceted, but one of their teachings was that the body was evil in and of itself, we might say the flesh, you know, those ingrained habits, sinfulness, but the body itself is created by God. It, it's good, and yet it's been affected by sin. Gnosticism would say, no, no, it's bad. So all you have to worry about is the inner self or the spirit. Just work on that. The body, you do whatever you want with it. Some Gnostics would become very ascetic and, and, and almost punish their bodies to try to make it a slave to whatever they were trying to accomplish, uh, works righteousness. Others would say, well, if it's not worth anything, then I'm just going to go crazy with it. So it, it tended to be very immoral behavior. So Gnosticism has been traced back to Simon, and other, they even use the word simony, which is the, the selling of religious favors for a price, all back to this one man. You see, when opportunities come for the church, counterfeits are going to come too. That's just the history of the church. Where do cults come from? Where do uh, false teachings come from? A lot of times it comes from people who may have some connection to the church, but want to do it their way and begin to counterfeit the church, counterfeit the gospel with something else. And finally, we also see obedience and boldness being part of this new frontier. And we see Philip continuing to preach and do what he was called to do. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake or Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. He came from northern Africa, kind of Egypt. That's, that's the Cushite people came from that area. And that's, that's what it was called back then. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He was a non-Jew, but he believed in the one true God and he was coming to worship. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, which was common in that day for people to read out loud, so he would have heard it. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage from Isaiah 53. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him, the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is the water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, in some of your Bibles, you see a little bracket with a 37 in there, or you have a scripture that's in brackets. Verse 37 was not in the original documents. It's not believed, and in earlier transcripts from the Greek, we don't see that. But at some point, it shows up. They think it could have been a scribe who was trying to maybe help us understand a little bit more. So it would say this, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that just to explain a little bit about where did verse 37 go.
And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And the chariot was probably more of an ox-drawn cart, more than the, you know, a Charlton Heston type of Ben-Hur chariot that you might see on TV. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. Philip went up the coast all the way up about 60 miles up in the northern part of Israel. We'll see him again in Acts chapter 21 as he continues to faithfully serve the Lord. You see, Philip responded with obedience and boldness to his divine appointment. As we think about our community, as we think about our lives personally, one of the things that I think we, we, it would be helpful for us to, to remember, and I think one of the key truths we learn from this passage is that God is always at work in our community, in our relationships of preparing the hearts of people for himself. And as we follow his leadership, as we respond to change in our life, rather than complaining about it, which is very easy to do, saying, Lord, what are you doing? What are you trying to show me with this change that is coming? Whatever that change might be. Looking for those opportunities, but also know there's counterfeits out there. And so God is wanting to use us who, who carry the truth in us to bring that to people as our circumstances may be changing. But then it also takes those steps of obedience and boldness. There is that word obedience again. Don't you just, man, you wish that wasn't in the Bible. That's what kids say when they're being raised. Man, I don't want to have to obey that. And sometimes we say that to the Lord, don't we, in our hearts. I don't want to obey that. I just want to do my thing. And God is saying, no, if you really want my joy, if you really want my peace, if you really want my purpose, a sense of being used by me, make my thing your thing. Because that's the most important thing. And everything else in your life then will take its proper order. But if we do not seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then things get turned upside down very quickly and we will miss opportunities to be used by God in changing circumstances because of disobedience. So my encouragement to all of us, including me, is to continue to pray about the changes that come to our life, because they're going to come. Aging just simply brings changes. That, that's simply part of living life on this earth. The opportunities that come with changes take steps of obedience, and when God opens that door, be bold in Jesus to share what we know to be true, faith in Jesus Christ. Let me invite the worship team if they'd come and lead us in our final song. Let's stand together and let me close in prayer. And thank you again, worship team, for being with us and leading us so well and so faithfully this morning. There may be something on your heart and mind. Maybe there is some changes going on in your life and you're thinking, what in the world is God trying to tell me or what is he doing? We're going to have a couple in this corner up here and they would love to pray with you about that. Maybe help to sort through some things and just lift those before the Lord so you might get some clarity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning. We do want to lift before you the changes that come on our life. Some are easy and, ex and some are very exciting. Maybe the fulfillment of a dream in some way and others just sometimes seem like a nightmare. But we know that you're a sovereign God over all of these things. And so help us to watch and respond first of all, to you, to the changes that come, to look for 
opportunities that come our way, knowing there's counterfeits out there all over the place. But then in obedience and boldness to follow you as Philip did. We may not be a Philip, and that's okay. But you have placed us here for a reason at this time. To be your representatives in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our families, in our schools, on our teams. Lord, would we make your thing, our thing, more and more. Seeking first your kingdom. So that we might see you continue to work in and through us. To build what lasts forever. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.